The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I want to talk in this session about essentially other interpretations um, of this text and some of the commentaries. There's two main commentaries on this text. The one, the Mahanidesa, which I talked about as being that dictionary of terms. And the, there's one called the Paramatha Jataka, which is uh, written by Buddhaghosa. So that's about first century AD, I think, is when Buddhaghosa uh, lived. And he, the, the two commentaries are very much in agreement with each other. Um, and very much their goal is to align this teaching of the Atakavaga with the traditional Theravada view, particularly about the path and the goal. It's as if they were... Um, So in a sense, really, this teaching, this Atakavaga teaching, was seen as somewhat controversial in its day, or seen as, um, um, again, something that really needed to be probed to be understood. And we've seen some of those in some of the paradoxes that we've talked about. But I think that in some ways these commentators, and this is opinion, I have to put that out there, this is opinion, these, these commentators went further than they needed to in interpreting or drawing out the text. And so we'll look at some of the ways that they took various words and essentially um, tried to overlay the standard Theravada views of the path and the goal onto this teaching. So to start with, I'll just give a little brief, I think most of you know this, but I'll just summarize very briefly a little bit about the traditional Theravada view of the path and the goal. The goal is defined to be freedom from craving, freedom from um, that that craving, the the tanha. But the... um, the way in which it works in the tr- traditional Theravada view is that there's a model of life, a model of essentially successive rebirths that we go through, and that it is this craving that fuels this uh, path on successive rever- rebirths, the path of samsara, essentially. So this, the, the traditional Theravada view adds this whole notion of the uh, rebirth and the f- being, becoming freed from this cycle of rebirth as part of the goal of practice. And that the freedom from clinging, the freedom from craving... Uh, essentially is what releases us from this cycle. Because if we're no longer craving, we're no longer craving future existences. And that being the, the piece that kind of has the entire structure of samsara kind of fall apart. If we stop craving, then there is no more rebirth. So it, it, we talked about this a little earlier, how that is a, a kind of a metaphysical or a transcendental 
view of the goal. Essentially, it is uh, looking at the goal as being tied to something um, beyond what we can really experience in our in our world. I had to actually look up the definition for metaphysics because um, I, I, I kind of had a sense of what it meant, but um, I looked again on Wiki- Wikipedia was was um, complying. It says metaphysics is the branch of philosophy investigating principles of reality transcending those of any particular science. So it is. Um, Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy investigating principles of reality, transcending those of any particular science. Yeah. When you talk about it being the goal of Theravadan, I mean, the cessation of suffering, couldn't you say that's the goal? Yes, but they tie, and the the cessation of craving is the means, but they tie it to... I know it's tied to, but it isn't exclusively. I mean, suffering is defined elsewhere as this worldly stuff. Yes, that is true. And in fact, um, they don't seem... It's interesting, one of the things that's really pointed out in in Burford's book is that the um, commentators don't seem to see that there's any kind of a conflict or any kind of a problem with having both, that essentially that there is this idea that there can be this freedom in here and now, and also in this letting go of, um, of the, the continual rebirths. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about where some of the knots come in around that. So, um, and, and this will kind of unfold a little bit <laughs> over the course of this this um, discussion. So, just the, the kind of um, way in which the path is described from the tr- traditional Theravada view is in these four stages of liberation: the stream enterer, the uh, once returner, non-returner, and the fully liberated, and the the fetters that essentially get let go of. We've been talking about these a little bit. The, the things that we're holding on to that get let go of as we progress through these stages. So just as a reminder, um, doubt, identity view, and rites and rituals are let go of at the, um, the stage of stream enterer. There is an attenuation of greed and aversion uh, at once returner. There is an elimination of greed and aversion at non-returner. And then there's an elimination of restlessness, conceit, and ignorance at full liberation. So essentially this, even the names of these stages are tied to this idea of rebirth. The stream enterer, not so much, but the standard Theravada view of stream enterer being once you've hit that stage, that you have no more than seven lifetimes left. So right then and there, it's pointing to a metaphysical change in your being as a person, something that has shifted in you, that has taken you out of the forever loop on samsara. Um, The once returner, is um, 
someone who has gotten to the place where they'll only once more return to the human realm. Again, a metaphysical change to the, the sort of the construction of being, what it means to be human. And a non-returner never returning to the human realm. And the liberated person is defined as liberated from future birth. That's almost the way in which that person is defined. Although, of course, it is there's this whole other set of teachings, and they're, they're kind of side by side, where someone who's liberated is, is referred to as someone without greed, without aversion, without delusion. So not someone who has attained that state of non, non-clinging. Question? No. Okay. So with this, partly, and I just briefly here, I'm going to mention um, partly what they need to do is explain what it means for a human being to have reached this state because there's some there's some places in the in the text that talk about um, you know when when a person is fully liberated they are no longer found in the human realm and how do they ex- they explain that with someone who is fully liberated and still living in this life. So the way they did this is to come up with this two-category thing about freedom, about Nibbana, that there is Nibbana with remainder and Nibbana without remainder. Nibbana with remainder being completely freed, but yet with the body, uh, the aggregate still here. Nibbana without remainder happening when someone who is fully liberated dies. Is that the same as parinibbana? Parinibbana, yeah. That's, yeah. So we'll go into that a little bit more in a little while, but basically the commentaries put this model onto the Atakavaga. They they try to, to, to point to places where the Atakavaga is teaching this. So let's look at some of the ways in which this might be possible. So to start with, let's look at places where the Atakavaga might even point to transcendent reality. So there are a couple of references on page 12. A couple of references, three here, that I found that might refer to some kind of a transcendent reality. So in verse uh, 803, he he does not conjecture, follow others' opinions, or hold on even to Dhamma. He is a Brahmin, not led astray by precepts and practices. Gone to the further shore, he does not return. So this gone to the further shore is um, sometimes... It, it could potentially refer to some transcendent metaphysical kind of state. Um, Saratissa and Norman also use further shore. Tanisaro uses the beyond as the translation for that. In the second one, so one always mindful should avoid sensual desires. Letting them go, he'd cross over the flood like one who, having bailed out the boat, has reached the far shore. 
So again, here it's that same term, the far shore. And in this case, all of the translators use the same term. And that's not surprising. It's used as an analogy here. It clearly says in all of the translations I looked at, like one who has bailed out a boat has reached the far shore. So in this verse, it's used as an analogy, as opposed, I think, as opposed to an actual description. So that, to me, leaves open the possibility that it could be an analogy in the first case. Um, It also could refer to, there's oftentimes it's talked about that when you cross over, um, there's, there's, there are other sutras that talk about crossing over the flood of craving, that the craving is, is considered to almost be um, like water that you would cross over. So crossing over the flood of craving. So not necessarily something transcendent, actually. So those first two, I think it's kind of hard to, to necessarily construe those as having to refer to transcendent reality. This third one, 960. How many dangers in the world for the monk going the direction he has never gone? That he should, how many dangers in the world for the monk going the direction he has never gone? That he should transcend there in his isolated abode. And this term, going in the direction he has never gone, is the one that could potentially refer to some kind of transcendent reality. Um, be, yeah, go ahead. I read that as transcendent dangers. Going the direction he has never gone is transcending the dangers. Well, the um, some of the other people who have uh, translated this, Verado has used going where he never before has gone. Norman uses the undying quarter which I think is interesting since Gil has pointed me as he's being the most reliable. Saratisa says going toward the region of immortality. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that there's a great tradition in interpreting Buddhist texts or in translating Buddhist texts to use previous commentaries as a way to help translate difficult terms. So it's very likely that Norman and Saratisa used the Mahanidesa's version of this word to translate it in these terms as the undying quarter or as in uh, toward the region of immortality. So they probably used those other translations to interpret what that meant. So Grace Burford actually believes that this last verse, now I, I kind of agree with you, um, Tony, that it's, it's going in the direction you've never gone. I mean, the, the, the direction of non-craving is a direction you've never gone. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily have to refer to something transcendent and un, you know, undying or immortality. Um, but Grace Burford actually thinks that this verse might have been added later that it might be a late addition to the, to the text. Then there are several places where there might be a, a reference to possible, you know, to rebirth, to, to that 
cycle of existence. The term bhava is used quite a few times. I think um, Burford points out that it's used 16 times in the text. And this term bhava is sometimes translated as existence, sometimes translated as becoming. And it is often construed in the um, Theravada tradition to refer to future becoming, becoming in terms of rebirth. Now, one of the interesting things, let's look at a couple of these. Let's look at the first two. In terms of rebirth. So let's look at these first two possible references to a future existence. Um, Those bound by desire in bondage to the pleasure of existence, which is the term here, in bondage to the pleasure of existence, are not easily released. We came across this uh, verse earlier. So in bondage to the pleasure of existence. This is clearly um, linking to craving for existence as opposed to um, you know, stating that there is future existence. And Burford points out that of the 16 times that this term is used in the Atakavaga, 14 of them clearly talk about craving for rebirth and not, are not necessarily saying anything about whether rebirth is true. I think it's widely known that rebirth was a very common view in the time of the, the Buddhist, when the Buddha lived. And they're addressing that view, addressing that uh, notion of um, craving for rebirth or craving for not being reborn is, is a view that was quite common. So in, the, in most of the Atagavaga, it's simply addressing that craving and not addressing whether that is true or not, not addressing whether the uh, fact of future existence is true or false. It, doesn't, it, it mostly doesn't come down on whether it's true or false. Mm-hmm. In other words, a thought that, ar- that arose while you were talking, the craving for existence, so I don't know so much about the rebirth, but craving for existence, you know, one way that I would think about not having a sense of I am is also not having a sense of existing. Mm-hmm. And so craving for existence is tied up with that sense. So yes. it may have nothing to do with... With rebirth. Yeah. Exactly. The fact that I'm thinking of myself as an entity that exists. And yes. That I have that sense and I want to keep it. That's mm-hmm. why I don't want to die. Yep, that's very well put. And in fact, be... Um, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was really one of the first people to talk about becoming in those terms. Uh, that really, what he saw becoming as meaning is this birth into identity. You know that that is what the Buddha is talking about with with this becoming is just this continual, never-ending rebirth into a new identity, moment by moment. Um, So that is also what this could be referring to, that chain of dependent origination, sometimes called the cycle of becoming, um, is understood by, I'm I'm not, it's often understood as being a three-life model, 
that, you know, part of the chain refers to a past life and part of the chain refers to this life and then part of the chain refers to a future life. Um, but Bhikkhu um, Ajahn Buddhadasa said, no, this is just happening moment by moment over and over again. And I believe even the Abhidhamma supports that, that it's happening over by, you know, moment by moment, that it's not strictly something that is about past lives and future lives, but that it is also an ongoing phenomenon. Does anybody know for sure about that? With, I'm fairly sure that the Abhidhamma supports that reading of it as well. Just I don't know about the Abhidhamma, but, but some of the, John Peacock anyway says that the reason that that, that got that it was interpreted that way is because it misinterpreted Nama Rupa as actual, you know, real separation of mind and body, which would have been the beginning of the second. I see. Uh-huh. But it's really just the blueprint. And that then birth becomes uh, not another birth of a body. But, and that it was that misinterpretation of those two mm-hmm. that, that led to that. So it's... Um, I think this is very interesting to explore, but I also have to say, you know, in my read of the Pali Canon, outside of this, rebirth is talked about all the time. It is throughout the suttas. So it seems pretty clear that, it, you know, even the Buddha saw it as a true view, you know, that it, that it was a view that the, the Buddha held. I've read that uh, there are accounts of uh, uh, Buddha's enlightenment that uh, he had gone back through every life uh, that he had existed in uh, uh, through his series of rebirth uh, to the present and so on. Uh, I have a couple of uh, a few conflictions regarding Rebirth and, and, and it's, it stems from consciousness and awareness in the sense that, you know, in terms of identity, self, uh, you know, uh, when does that begin? It begins with our uh, socialization. It begins, you know, when uh, our birth certificate and people telling us our names and so on. But, you know, when we're born, uh, we don't have that sense of identification that sense of identity, of name, of uh, that anchorage, uh, we have awareness, uh, aliveness. And uh, there is, uh, and I, I think uh, part of awareness training is, is to arrive at that uh, undefined level of, of awareness so that the awareness, that undefined level of awareness becomes a watcher watching the watcher uh, or watching uh, the uh, um, identity of self. And in terms of rebirth, um, when we think in terms of rebirth, we have to, I, I can't help but ask the question, who is being reborn? Mm-hmm. Well, this this is a very common question, um, and you know that the the um, the way that I can understand it is not who is being reborn 
anymore in our moment-to-moment experience, is there somebody here? You know, that it is simply a process going on. And there are explanations about how the process continues beyond this life. Um, But, you know, you could think about, for example, um, I think one of the the standard analogies or uh, examples you use to help people make this leap or understand how it might work in terms of who is reborn or what is carried forward if you think of um, a flame and a candle and you think about that flame and the flame then if you light another candle with that flame and then another one and then another one is the flame the same or different so there's a conditionality there's a there's a a um, there's 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 a conditionality whereby the existence of one flame conditions the existence of the next one but they're not really the same flame you know they're they're but there is a sense in which one could see or would could imagine or believe that they were the same flame well there's an implied continuum yes and there is there is a sense of some kind of a process unfolding with a particular direction flowing from life to life also in the standard teachings that it's like a river you know it's like the river's got its banks and mostly it stays within the banks and it's simply it's like there's not really anything that is the river you can't take a bucket of water and say this is the river but that river's got its its own flow it's got its own direction its own path and that's kind of you know it's 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 the it's the stream of causes and conditions that propels us in a particular direction and it's simply the arising of phenomena just you know arising passing away arising passing away arising passing away and at the end of your life you die and you happen to arise the, the consciousness the stream of consciousness continues arising in some other body I don't know what I would say it was <laughs> <laughs> Some view or other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of issues with it, too. I mean, I cannot see how it would work without having some kind of physical storage somewhere. You know, where is this momentum carried? You know, is it all right there in a single moment? That's what Steve Armstrong said to me. You know, imagine the entire thing. It's like a hologram. You know, it can be reconstructed from this very present moment. Your entire history and your entire future right in this very moment is held so that there's no need for any kind of storage. I don't know. You know, to me, it seems like a lot of what's taught needs some kind of um, mechanism for like like the whole notion of latent tendencies where, you know, they're not present in the moment, but we've got this tendency for greed, aversion, and delusion to erupt. Where is that tendency held? To me, it seems like it's probably stored in the brain somewhere, but then it falls apart at death in terms of, you know, the next, how it would be carried to a future life. So to me, I don't understand how it works. I've got no view that would, that would support it. <laughs> Steve. That's interesting when you just said the physics connection. I mean, everybody 
and there's all these books about that people are trying to rationalize all this stuff and even the, like a process is I guess more like it is because even physicists would agree there's no time that's just a, a useful concept that people use so um, what am I trying to say oh yeah um, so the Buddha talks about this there's four things you really shouldn't delve into and one's the whole thing of, of karma which would have to do with rebirth and everything else the bottom line is I think these classes are nice and everything, but you're not going to really figure it out. <laughs> Once you think you have it, if you really are mindful about it, you'll see just a view you're attaching to and you're freezing reality <laughs> into a certain view of the way things are. And that actually will hinder your process. You've got to take all this stuff lightly. <laughs> I think that's the intent of the Sati Center classes. You want know, people to freeze all this stuff and take it lightly. Hopefully, the part part of the point is to kind of shatter some uh, views. <laughs> yes, make sure you 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 pick up less views from this class. <laughs> so um, then, the the second two possible references to a future existence are the two out of the entire Hatakavaga that um, might actually, that, that don't refer to that craving. So 877, knowing liberated, he does not dispute. The wise man does not return to any form of existence. Now again, you know, this, the, one of the things I think is interesting is that the whole teaching of the Atakavaga is what is happening in this life. So I think it may be more along the lines of, of your view. I don't remember your name. Art. Art, of Art's view that, it's not returning to any future. And again, this can be termed as becoming, not, not becoming anything, um, any, any more identity. That I am part has disappeared. But again, this is clearly um, people, uh, standard Theravada would interpret this as not being reborn. And the next one. Um, those for whom virtuous conduct is the highest practice say that purity is a matter of self-restraint. Having undertaken such a practice, they dedicate themselves to it. They think we should train ourselves in just this. That would be purity. These so-called experts are thus led on to further existence. So again, it's not talked about in terms of craving, but a statement of a wise man doesn't return to existence and a um, these so-called experts are led on to further existences. So, and Grace Burford also suggests that these two verses were introduced later. I think it's a little um, convenient to say that, but <laughs> I don't know. It, se- it seems to me that um, it, it, it may not be necessary, right? It may not be necessary. So, how does the Mahanidesa put this teaching onto the text? So, part of the way they do this is by defining particular words. So, I don't have this in the in the handout. Unfortunately, I didn't think of putting this part in the handout. Um, so, for example, the term for peace, santi, in Pali. 
they have, they basically define peace, seclusion, security, and nibbana, kind of with synonyms, that they're given very similar definitions. So these four terms are kind of used synonymously in the Mahanidesa, in that commentary. And there are three basic ways in which they are defined. So the first, they call the first formula, the first nidesa, is basically a description of what has been let go of when one reaches peace. So this is very similar to the way the Atakavaga defines it. So there's this, this list of things that have been let go of. Uh, anger, passion, rage, lust, uh, you know, a whole long list of things that have been let go of. And these are very um, this-worldly. This list is very this-worldly. The second formula um, includes synonyms, what they say synonyms for peace are. And in here, they start bringing in um, some metaphysical or transcendent. So they say shelter, protection, refuge, eternal, deathless, Nibbana. So they bring in eternity and deathless into this second formula. So uh, ascribing uh, these qualities of eternal and deathless kind of make this state of peace uh, transcendent definition. It defines it as a transcendent thing. Using those words... Uh, deathless and what was the other one? Eternal. Eternal. Those those are those are nouns, and these other things can be can be things we do. We can be pe- we can be peaceful. I mean, they're they're things we they're, they're, they're qualities they're, of a human being. Right. Yeah. They're verbs, and they aren't this other. Yes. And, and so, deathless and eternal seem to me like they're. I mean, eternal is not a Nietzsche. <laughs> no, but it is said that Nibbana is permanent. I mean, I think it's, I think that the Theravada actually says that, doesn't it? I mean, does anybody remember that? I think I re- remember that. It's like the only thing that's permanent. I, it, it is. I remember. I remember. Aren't, aren't we in the realm of speculative views here? I, I think so. Okay, okay, yes. okay. Just, just, I just wanted to. Okay. That's, that's all. <laughs> I'm actually kind of amused here that the Mahanidesa is, you know, taking a view and putting it onto this text. I mean, it's like, it's a classic example of what the Atakavaga is actually saying you shouldn't do. <laughs> I mean, that they have this view and they see their experience and they're reading the Atakavaga through that view and saying, oh, this means that, this means that. I think it's kind of amusing, actually. How are we defining the deathless and the unmanifested and well, so on? Those words. We were not. Yeah. We were not defining them. <laughs> they were listed in the Mahanidesa as synonyms for peace. As synonyms for peace. Eternal and deathless were listed as synonyms for peace, and I don't know whether they actually further defined them or are assuming that we understand them through um, the other teachings of the Buddha. I know that the Buddha did in one area in the 
Samyutta Nikaya, there's a there's a um, a sutta that offers something like 35 or 40 some odd number of synonyms for nibbana. Permanent is in there. Deathless is in there uh, as synonyms for nibbana. Um, so. I, I I don't know that they've really been defined. <laughs> so the third formula um, defines the goal in terms of changes that take place in people. So it is the quieting of formations, the eradication of bonds, the destruction of craving, this is this probably is familiar. So the quieting of formations, the eradication of bonds, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. So this is more about changes that happen to us as we move on the path. I'm not in the handout. I, I'm sorry. I didn't think of putting this in the handout. I apologize. So this, this um, except for cessation and nibbana, they, they all seem much more connected to changes that happen to persons, this, this list. So really the only place that the synonyms start to get transcendent is in that second formula, eternal and deathless. Then in um, a... Formulation about the term seclusion, which is, again, another one of the terms that's used synonymous with Nibbana, with peace. It brings in the description. It it claims that what seclusion means is seclusion from those fetters that are eradicated on the path to awakening. And this description brings in the entire discussion of the four stages and which fetters are eradicated, bringing in essentially the idea of rebirth. So this is just basically taking the term seclusion and defining it as seclusion from all of those fetters and how those fetters are tied to the whole stages of rebirth. So almost just kind of like with whole cloth, they're just saying, This is what this term means, and it kind of brings in this entire metaphysical realm in this one definition. Then in the um, commentary on Sutta 2, which we have in here, the first, it's on page 4, The first um, verse, the pleasures of the world are not easily forsaken. That that to me is not particularly confusing. You know that it's pretty much this worldly. The pleasures of the world are not easily forsaken. The definition of world offered in the Mahanidesa defines it in terms of the regions of existence, all of the different realms, the metaphysical worlds that exist, the hell realms, the heaven realms, the human world, the divine world. 
It also defines it in terms of the sensory world, um, but it brings in the whole notion of all these different layers of metaphysical reality that we can't touch from the world that we live in. So it takes that term world and expands it to mean beyond this world. Now, one thing I just wanted to point out is that as far as I understand the Buddha's actual definition of this word world, which is loka in Pali, the term loka is the term for world. And the Buddha in Sutta, in Samyutta Nikaya 2.26 defines what he means by world. And he says, what I call the world lies in this fathom long body. So that's, again, very much embedded in our experience of our body and our mind. What he calls the world is this body-mind complex that, that we experience things in. So it's kind of a stretch to me also. It seems a little bit of a stretch to throw in all of the other uh, heaven realms, hell realms, into this, into this very seems to me fairly worldly verse. A person embedded in the cave of sensual reminiscence, where many things remain deeply hidden, shrouded in bewilderment, is far from true seclusion. The pleasures of this of the world are not easily forsaken. To go from there to the entire set of realms of existence. Yeah, the Mahanidesa, in the Mahanidesa commentary, they take that term world and say, this means heaven realms, hell realms, and all of that whole metaphysical commentary. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. Yes. You, we so could think of that as psychological. Yes, they right. they don't. <laughs> right. But could they be metaphors, psychological metaphors? Uh, you know, uh, for I don't believe they think of them as psychological metaphors. We can think of them as psychological metaphors, and I think that's how, like Stephen Batchelor likes to look at things. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's certainly helpful, I think, for us to think of them as psychological metaphors. Well, look, the, uh, like the hungry ghosts, is, for me, is a, is, is a, a beautiful uh, classic mm-hmm. met- such metaphor. Maybe yeah. a, not to them, but I, perhaps a lot of us see it as... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a way, it's sort of, I think there's a danger, though, in saying, well, that's what is meant. I mean, it's, it is an easy way for us to understand it as psychological metaphor. But I don't believe, actually, that is the way it was understood. Well, they didn't have psychology and science, so it was, it was yeah. Yeah. To the level of understanding at that time. That's one way of looking at it. It could be attaching to a view that it's psychological and stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe the reality is there really are. Maybe the reality is there really are hell realms and heaven yeah. realms and everything else. I, um, I had a conversation with a Burmese monk about this. Um, because, you know, I was interested in Stephen Batchelor's view on Mara in particular and 
how Mara kept reappearing to the Buddha after his death, and how did a Burmese monk understand this? I was curious. And he gave me a discourse on the five kinds of Mara, one of them being this psychological realm. So there is that notion of the psychological Mara, you know, that, that it is a, essentially a demon in our minds. I don't remember the other three, but one of them, he said, but Mara is a real being. That is one of the five kinds of Mara. Mara is a real being. Of course it makes it doesn't make any sense. If you thought of the Mara as being a psychological Mara only, it wouldn't make any sense that Mara kept reappearing to the Buddha after he died. I mean after after he was enlightened. But Mara did keep reappearing. And Mara is a real being. That is who appeared. <laughs> was the real being. Say, say, say more. What do you mean? Give, give Chris the microphone. If we look at psychological as being my mind and my brain, I mean, there's all kinds of psychology ah, that's true. these days. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there's stuff that goes on from somewhere. I mean, uh-huh. Who knows what it is? You know, if it's not me and mine, and yet it happens, and it can seem to have an intelligence and a process of its own, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. like some of Jung's experiences and things. It's not. What does existence mean? I mean, it's it's all words. That's true, and you know, in in the state of no clinging, who knows what goes on? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we certainly don't believe in Mara. <laughs> My understanding is, is Mara, Brahma, and all of them are very temporary positions. Well, not temporary. They're but posts. They, they They're be, called you know, posts. Millions of years, and they die. Someone else, who knows? Like the Buddha. Like the Buddha. Like the Buddha. I mean. Uh, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Mogalana was supposed to have been Mara at yeah, one yeah. I mean, pre- previous life. You said before about the Buddha remembering his past lives. He only remembered back to when he made a vow to become a Buddha, which was, I think, 100,000 eons, which I've calculated. No, eons. A-A-E-O-N-S, which I calculate, calculate to several trillion years when the universe came and gone. <laughs> he couldn't see back to all his beginning lives. So I'm sure all of us have been Mara at one time. <laughs> Brahma, all the others. So um, to keep going, uh, here, here, this one is kind of interesting. So this is um, verse 793, which I'm not sure is in your handout. It may be. He is peaceful towards everything, whether seen, heard, or cognized. He sees things as they are and conducts himself openly. How could anyone have any doubts about him? And here, this is where the um, this is where the Mahanidesa characterizes liberated persons as one who cannot be found in any of the six realms or any of the heaven, hell, or human realms. So this, I think, really opens up a contradiction or confusion for me, at least. If a human being cannot be found among any of the realms, or if the liberated person cannot be found among any of the realms, this is really a clear metaphysical distinction between an ordinary being and a liberated being. This person cannot be found among any of these realms. And this really opens the door to what happens to a person when they become liberated in this life. If they're are they then not found in the human realm? And what does it mean for them to continue living? 
So this is really where we get into this Nibbana with and without remainder. And it adds a layer of metaphysical complexity to um, the Theravada teaching, I think. There's some, it raises a whole bunch of questions. Um, so, for example, you know, this Nibbana with and without remainder, the, the awakening of somebody in this life versus the awakening of somebody as they die, you know, the, 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 the arhant who dies. Is, there, is one or the other of these more primary or more important than the other? Are they of equal stature? Is there a difference between these two beings, the, the being that is enlightened in this life and the one that is um, in, in that Nibbana without remainder? There seems to be some difference because they describe them differently. There's this Nibbana with remainder and Nibbana without remainder. Why don't, don't these two kinds of Nibbanas occur simultaneously? There's just all these questions that kind of get added, layers of complexity that have to be explained, and I'm sure they have explanations for all of these. The one that I'm most comfortable with, if we have to have both of these happening at the same time, is that the metaphysical shift of um, whatever metaphysical ramifications there are is a side effect of non-clinging. That essentially the the um, awakening to that place of complete non-clinging is the primary liberation, and whatever happens after that is kind of a side effect. You know, if if, if it is the case that that person isn't reborn, it's like that's fine. You know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem quite as. Uh, it doesn't hold me quite as tightly if I look at the possible metaphysical consequences as being a side effect of non-clinging, as, being, as opposed to being the primary goal of the practice. You just made a comment that it's something that has to be explained. What do you mean by that, and why does it have to be explained? Well, the, I mean, these are all concepts, basically. I mean... It's the, um, I guess I mean it has to be explained because they're adding concepts that raise more questions. To me, in my mind, they raise more questions than they answer. So. That that goes back to the sutra where, I forgot what it was, asked the Buddha, is there a self? Is there not a self? You know, he wouldn't answer it. And and I said, why don't you answer that? Because just raise a whole thicket of views. Once you start down this path, you're never going to get asked. <laughs> being in a paper bag. Well, and I think, and to some extent, this whole framework of nibbana within without remainder is is kind of going in that direction. It's doesn't it come pretty much from the notion of, of the nibbana that that's somehow different. I mean, if the cognitive really is thus gone, and, he, and, and the issue of whether he exists before and after and now and never, then all that's happening is that the body is dying. Mm-hmm. And to, once you, if you say par and this is a big deal, 
then then you've got to explain that. It seems to me that that's the source of all. I, I think you're right. I think it is the source. This um, I don't know if that got recorded. So see if I can restate what Tony said. That um, that that the the whole idea of this um, nibbana within without remainder kind of came from the parinibbana, the 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 death of the Buddha, and that um, if we make that into something bigger or different somehow than simply the body just disintegrating. Which actually, that's interesting, because that's how it was described earlier. You know, if a person attains this awakening before the body disintegrates, just a simple disintegration of the body. Um, if it's turned into something that happens there, then it is, it like it becomes something more, as opposed to simply just the body disintegrating. But there, there are other teachers who have said, you know, nothing happens. When you die, you know, nothing happens, nothing changes. So, I don't know. I just think um, exploring these questions is interesting, and I also think that it's not necessary to add this whole set of concepts on top of the Atakavaga. The Atakavaga on top of this text, that the teaching of the Atakavaga itself is fairly. Um, Consistent, coherent. It's got some of these paradoxes that we need to deal with, um, particularly around a view of no views. But a whole bunch of issues around reconciling what happens after death and um, is there something that happens after death, that can all fall away if we don't, uh, we don't need to... Um, to use those terms in terms of understanding the teaching that the Atakavaga teaches. And I feel like the Atakavaga teaches a very clear path of non-clinging, of non-observing uh, craving, that one phrase, we, uh, that one verse we explored earlier, observing, mindfully observing the craving, that it, we go in through layers. So we, we have stages to the path to freedom, like the relay chariots. And the, the, the path is essentially always the same. It's just looking at different kinds of craving as we go in, or different levels of subtlety of craving as we go further and further. The more craving we let go of, the more subtle we see the craving that remains. So the, the training that's suggested in the Atakavaga is very straightforward. It's incredibly straightforward. The last three suttas really talk about the, um, the training. And looking at some of these. So starting at page 13, sutta 15. So the, the first set of things to do is to look at our behavior. Work with behavior, work with certain actions and behaviors being more preferable to others. With holding that view, but with the uh, eye to how is the craving holding these behaviors in place. 
So be truthful, not insolent, not deceptive, rid of divisiveness without anger. The sage should cross over the evil of greed and avarice. He should conquer laziness, weariness, sloth. He shouldn't consort with heedlessness. He shouldn't stand firm in his pride, the, ma- the man with his heart set on unbinding. He shouldn't engage in lying, shouldn't create a sense of allure in form, should fully fathom conceit, should live refraining from impulses, shouldn't delight in what's old, prefer what's new, grieve over declined, get entangled with what's dazzling and bright. This is a you know pretty... Um, anti-capitalistic so says Roseanne Um, um, it's very much about our behavior so I think this is really where we start we start with our behavior looking at um, how our behavior can uh, support this path towards non-clinging and if we go back and look at you know, compare some of the teachings here, you know, what this this training is. And we look at that very first, first sutta we talked about, the sutta number 10, where um, it describes a person who is free. It's very much a modeling of behavior. So the... Um, The person has no anger, no fear, no pride. He's the wise man who remains restrained in speech. Be truthful, not insolent, without anger, the sage. So the the training here, again, is is kind of modeling behavior as a skillful means. I'm just thinking that although you've been presenting that the Pali Canon adds on all this metaphysics, I'm also very grateful that they've added on like the four foundations of mindfulness and so forth because this it's awfully easy to hear this say just be good. You know, it's true. And that, as a complete teaching, that's not much more helpful than what you know you standardly get told. No, it's true. So. I, I I too am very grateful for the four noble truths and that you know the wisdom teachings. Really, this is this is pretty light on well and the how to you know get the, the how the, the whole idea of just bear of just. Non-judgmental attention and all that. They do talk about mindfulness in here as being a part of the training, but it's it's pretty low on um, technique. They don't say when there is anger, <laughs> just know there is yes, anger. No. You know what they say is don't be angry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And and that I think is part of the refinement that the Buddha came up with. You know that. Um, but but you know, and the other piece that's kind of interesting is that I found only two mentions of meditation in the whole thing. You know, there's, there's two mentions in the entire Atakavaga. I found only two references to he should meditate, he should practice concentration. Yes, um, there may be more, that's just how many I found. Well, again, that might point to who the audience was for this. I mean, if there were people that were just about to become stream enters, you might not have had to tell him to meditate. Although he's talking about, I mean, there are places he talks about don't engage in lying. I mean, it's like it's some basic treat training here. We're talking about some basics. But it covers the range. I mean, it goes all the way. It, 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 I'll, talk, I'll, sh- I'll point out to some others, too. I mean, the, so the basic here is the behavioral side of things. That's the outer layer. 
And then going in, there's the need to train to be mindful of the craving itself. So not just through behavior, but also paying attention through mindfulness. So here's where it talks a little bit more about the the training. It's pretty bare, but uh, Sutta 16. And then there are in the world the five kind of dusts, I think refers to the five sense bases, five physical sense bases, for whose dispelling mindful he should train with regard to forms, sounds, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations, he should conquer passion. With regard to these things, he should subdue his desire. So it's, um, you know, it's using mindfulness here, but it's, it's not quite as refined as it is in the Satipatthana Sutta, where it says, you know, know the angry mind is angry, know the um, peaceful mind is peaceful. It's, it's saying conquer passion, subdue desire. So I can see this as being an early teaching of the Buddha, you know, an early way that he framed this teaching. Um, then going further, so I, I think of this like, so we've gone from the body, you know, kind of the manifestation of how the craving leaks out into the world to the body, and then to the craving for our sense contact. That's this next piece. The next part is talking about the deeper, even deeper levels of clinging. Um, so the next one in, on the last page here, page 14, he should put an entire stop to the root complica- of complication classifications. This is papancha. This is Tanjeff's term for papancha. I am the thinker. He should train, always mindful to subdue any craving inside of him. That's the verse we talked about earlier. Whatever truth he may know within or without, he shouldn't get entrenched in connection with it, for that isn't called unbinding by the good. He shouldn't, because of it, think himself better, lower, or equal. Touched by contact in various ways, he shouldn't keep conjuring himself. I like that, too, that conjuring himself. That's a, it's a great analogy um, to, to contemplate and to actually see the kind of way in which we conjure we conjure ourselves up. There's a whole um, teaching on the consciousness being like a magic show, that essentially it is a conjurer that makes us uh, believe in the whole uh, reality of all of the aggregates. So shouldn't keep conjuring self. So that to me is is the you know, the the most subtle layer of the training, you know, that putting a stop to the I aming, to the selfing, noticing the clinging around that, noticing it arise, even just simply noticing the I, the I aming arise is, is a pretty amazing thing to see that. You're just like, there it is. And, <laughs> and, and to notice potentially, times that it's not there. there. There does kind of become this less sense of self-other when it's not there. So finally, even after that, one needs to see that clinging even to uh, Dhamma views is not skillful. So even clinging to the view that I need to put an entire stop to the root 
of papancha, the thought I am. If you cling to that view, there's going to be suffering. He should not come to an opinion about himself based on either his knowledge or upon his precepts and practices. He should not either present himself as an equal nor suppose that he is either inferior or superior. Abandoning what he has taken up, free of any basis of attachment, he does not rely upon even upon knowledge. Amongst those in dispute, he does not take sides. He does not revert to any grasping of opinions whatsoever. Now, I actually think that this level of letting go probably happens simultaneously with letting go of I am. I think they, they probably happen together. Oh, it's a very high bar. <laughs> another interesting, another interesting point. <laughs> another interesting point. Um, in Sutta Nine, it points out one who has realized truth, and this is feels, not fells. One who has realized truth feels no pride regarding his views or thoughts because he does not regard them as his. He is not led astray by what is learned or done. He is not led into attachment. So this to me points to the fact, and in fact there are other places, I didn't, I didn't get into this, but there is a place actually in the Atakavaga. I'll see if I can find it so you can um, uh, look for it. Um, where he says there is truth, that there is a truth. Um, So here it's clearly saying you can have views, you can have thoughts, there can even be a knowledge of truth, but it is not regarded as mine, that that is the issue. And I'll see if I can find this. Right, but there's another place. Um, Okay, so here it is. The Buddha, this is um, in, in Sutta 12, and I don't think it's in your handout, but it is in Tanjef, so you could look it up. Let's see if I can find it in Tanjef's. Okay, so it's, um, it's, let's say, I don't know what page it would be on, but it begins with, the truth is one. Page 278. The truth is one. There is no second about which a person who knows it would argue with one who knows. Contemplatives both promote their various personal truths. That is why they don't say one and the same thing. So another translation of that is the truth is single. There is not another truth about which mankind should contend. So he's stating here, actually, he states there is a truth. It's not simply that truth is relative or that there is no truth, but that but there is a truth. And then a little further down, two verses down, um, apart from their perception, there are no many various constant truths in the world. Preconceiving conjecture with regard to views, they speak of a pair, true and false. And another translation of that, apart from the mere idea of it, there are not many various and eternal truths in the world. 
But those people, by applying reason in respect to views, say there are two dhammas, truth and falsehood. So I think it's interesting that he does actually proclaim a truth. And here in Sutta 9, he says, one who has realized truth feels no pride regarding his views or thoughts because he does not regard them as his. So that the, the truth is, it's a recognition or a realization. Any thoughts on this? Go for it. <laughs> go, go for the, the mic. Yeah, when I read this to Gil, he got very uncomfortable. He said, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, I didn't know it was quite so clearly stated. <laughs> You know, it just it just it just suggests that, and, and here he writes it without a capital T, but it suggests that there is a truth that's separate from from experience, from the knowing. Well, maybe not. Maybe that is the truth that is realized you know, that there like, isn't a is truth there, separate from the knowing. Is there is there a law of gravity separate from? I mean, yeah, it's something. It's. I mean, I can see it be more, being more like, I mean, who knows? But I, I, I think along the lines of what Joseph says, let's get enlightened and find out. <laughs> let's, let's not speculate. <laughs> let's, but enlightened is sort of like that second room. Yeah, that's true. We don't know what it is. Yeah. yeah. So who knows whether if you got enlightened, you'd know. Yeah. Okay, well, I think everyone in this room Do you want that to use the mic? It's my understanding that you can't talk about. Like I say, those who talk about the Tao is not the Tao. Well, the Buddha talked about it. I mean, he... You know that there is a truth, but what that is, you can't say. He doesn't say, actually. It's not truth in the sense of a proposition. Right, right, exactly. Right. I think that's the key, and it's it's kind of like it goes back to what that that thing I started the afternoon with, um, that different order of seeing. Uh, where is that? That might be a good place to close by rereading that if I can find it. Here it is. When the texts teach that one should strive to attain right view, they are arguing for the attainment of a very specific attitude, a right way, a way of apprehending things without any form of attachment. Right view, or we could say truth here, is not simply another view as opposed to wrong view, nor it is, is it the rejection of all views. The opposite of wrong view is of a different nature, not a mere correction, but a different order of seeing. That is in um, Fuller. Fuller um, wrote that in his book, The Notion of Ditti in Theravada Buddhism. Actually, there's another, another interesting quote I'll read um, from, from Grace Burford. 
The Atakavaga is exceptional within even the earliest Buddhist literature in its non-metaphysical presentation of the highest good achievable by humans. But it is significant as an example of how the Buddhist ideal goal can be presented without all the usual problematic cosmological and metaphysical accessories that accompany it in the traditional Theravada doctrine. So there's a really, in some ways, I think of the Tara, of the Atakavaga as a really consistent teaching in many ways. It it presents the problem of existence as being one of craving and clinging, and using uh, mindfulness and observation to notice the successive layers and levels of clinging. It's it's a very this worldly very um, very much rooted in here and now. It's interesting that our everyday notions of what this world is are so wrapped up with thought. That our, that our everyday notions of what this world is is so wrapped up in thinking and metaphysics that it's so That's radical that non-metaphysics is is the ultimate truth. And <laughs> That's true. That it's just hard to, you know, it doesn't help people. Well, I think partly, I mean, it, it, it is pretty radical. I think, you know, when you've, had, when you've had a little taste of that without thought, it's like, it's very radical. It's not a, um, it's, not, it's not the same order. It's like that different order of seeing, like they were talking about. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, you're right. It's it doesn't need to be some weird state without thought, but just seeing things as phenomena. difference between you can't talk about this and, you know, and all the things you can talk about. Do I have anything else? No, that's, that pretty much covered it. I got through all of my notes. <laughs> Maybe a first for a Sati Center class. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. But for those who might be interested, uh, there is a, a series of uh, uh, documentary or, or uh, semi-enacted documentary uh, movies called the Dr. Quark series. The anybody ever heard of them? The Dr. Quark, Quark series. Uh, there's one in the series, uh, Dr. Quark, uh, Down the Rabbit Hole. <laughs> it is uh, it is uh, working with uh, uh, they interview uh, all you know, the highest levels of, of uh, quantum physicists and uh, 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 spiritual leaders and so on and so forth and they, you know merge the concepts together and uh, the they uh, have made very direct connections between uh, Many of the things that are, are uh, brought out in, in Buddhism, and, uh, uh, in terms of protonic uh, uh, and subatomic quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. the, 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 the t- continual transition and flow and change and, and no separation and yeah. In many cases, there are points that are corroborated from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And it's very fascinating. <laughs> I think uh, that's kind of why I brought up the, the physical, <laughs> the physics connection as well. Uh, 
quantum physics seems to be bringing out some of the, the things that we used to, that used to be in the metaphysical realm. Mm, it's true, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I just wanted to make that connection. Mm. So are those on, on on Netflix or something? Can you get those on Netflix? Uh, well, you can go to Blockbusters. And oh, they have them at Blockbusters? Sure. Hmm. Blockbusters. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, you can probably go to Amazon. What's the time level? Uh, uh, Dr. Clark, uh, Down the Rabbit Hole. Thank you. So thank you all for coming and being so... Uh, engaged. I really enjoyed the the day. And you said not next month. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this morning when I woke up, I thought, Ah, oh, this is the last day. <laughs> this is the last day, free from the Atacamaga. <laughs> oh no 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 no! I have been studying this for six months in order to present it. So, so no no, this is not the last day. This is the first and only day. But but I've been spending six months preparing for this day. <laughs> so thank you all. It was it was it was much more enjoyable than I could have ever imagined. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And may the uh, benefits of our practice together be uh, offered to support the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be free from suffering.